hope you brought your Bible with you. I know you did. If you'll open it to Acts chapter 2. We continue today in a series we've been doing in preaching on the church. You remember I started back uh, in September uh, preaching on uh, the promise of the church where Jesus in Matthew 16 says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We looked also at the preparation for the coming of the church in Acts chapter 1 as they continued steadfastly in prayer. And we also looked in Acts chapter 1 what was going on there as there was time for a replacement for Judas and how they came to this decision to select Matthias to be one of the apostles and fill in for the vacancy of the betrayer of the Lord Judas and exactly how they through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, made this critical decision. We talked last week uh, about one of the two church ordinances that the church has as we took communion together and how critical the nature of, uh, of these great symbols of our faith as we took the, the bread and the cup and were reminded once again of the great salvation provided in Christ our Lord. Today as we look at Acts chapter 2, uh, we're going to be looking at a message I've entitled, The First Day of Church. And I know some of you who grew up in the church can't remember your first day of church. It goes back to the cradle roll or whatever as your parents took you to church. However, there's some of you here today who perhaps didn't know the gospel, hear the gospel until later in life. Maybe someone brought you uh, who was a part of a youth group that cared about your soul and brought you to church and you heard the gospel and believed. Some of you perhaps as adults came the first time you ever were in a church that preached the gospel and you remember a great occasion of being in the church. This is the first day of church. It's found in Acts chapter two at what we're looking at today as when Pentecost would come. You know, we know the book of Acts, it's entitled Acts of the Apostles, but it could rightfully be called as well Acts of the Holy Spirit. Certainly they were, the apostles were being used, but some 50 times we read throughout the book of Acts about the Spirit's activity as the Spirit is empowering people, gifting people, convicting people, correcting people, leading people, unifying people, sending people. It's a book about the Holy Spirit's activity. So Acts 2 is not about the Holy Spirit's descending. Uh, it's, uh, it's also about the, 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 arguably the most powerful sermon ever preached. 3,000 people would be saved, the New Testament church would begin, and certainly we all know Acts chapter 2 as a memorable and pivoting message that the Apostle Peter would preach and 3,000 would be saved. You know, as I thought about these powerful messages that's been preached over the years, I remember uh, hearing a story, Dr. Paul Negrutz, who is the president of uh, Emmanuel Bible College and Seminary in Aradia, Romania, who happens to be a friend of Mary and I's, told the story one time, uh, just after the fall of communism there in Romania, that uh, Luis Palau came to preach uh, in Bucharest uh, uh, to, a, to a crowd that was gathering in a, uh, in a football stadium or a soccer stadium, probably actually what it was, what we would call uh, soccer. Anyhow, he said it was a torrential rain that day, and they were concerned whether anybody would come to hear the evangelist preach. 
However, 60,000 people came that day, and Luis Palau preached. Dr. Negruch was doing the interpreting. He said he concluded his message, he gave the appeal, and 60,000 people came forward to receive Christ as their personal Savior. Can you imagine? One of our incredible stories of the Spirit at work breaking the, those bonds of communism as the people heard the gospel and responded. Well, today, you and I are worshiping because of the truth of what happened here at Pentecost. The gospel was spread. It was no longer just a message for the Jewish nation, but for every race, tribe, and kindred, for all peoples and all nations. And so it's in, uh, definitely endearing to us to hear once again these truths that are found in Acts chapter 2. So we're going to look at 21 verses. Rather than read all of them, I've, I've chosen some select verses. You'll want to keep your Bible open. We're going to unpack as many as possible. And so y'all listen up quickly. We're going to move uh, rather fast today. So please stand on reading God's Word. Put the uh, text up on the screen for us as I read and you follow along there or in your Bible. We're going to read the first four verses. Follow along as I read. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not uh, drunk, these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But what this is was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it came to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on, and on my manservants and on my maidservants, and I will pour out my spirit in these days, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Therefore, the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, and it shall come to pass that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be, let's say that last word together, saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Father in heaven, thank you that you've loved us with an everlasting love. You've chosen by your grace and mercy to save those who were yet in rebellion against you. Thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit of God in our life that has drawn us to Christ. And now we pray in his strong name that you would teach us from your word today. Help us to understand more clearly about who you are and about what you've done. And this great condescending love that we know in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we like to do here, we're going to look at three things this morning. And you see the outline in the compass there. You can follow along with me and fill in these blanks. I hope it'll be beneficial. We're going to begin by talking about the Pentecostal phenomenon. In those first four verses that we just read, Luke tells us it was the day of Pentecost. 
And so all of these Jewish constituents were celebrating the Feast of Weeks. And as many of you already know, the word Pentecost means 50. It had been 50 days since the Passover celebration when Jesus, along with his disciples, had gathered in the upper room. And that same upper room we read about in Acts 1 verse 15 and uh, where we find the disciples praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that was about to occur. This day that we're considering this morning is a day that definitely would change the world. While Jesus walked on this earth, the Spirit of God resided on one man, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. But now the Spirit of Jesus Christ was about to be poured out on thousands. This is the day that Jesus had promised, and it is a never-to-be-repeated-again phenomenon, and it was about to happen. It was G. Campbell Morgan, the great uh, English preacher who happened to be a medical doctor as well, who said, no chapter in all the New Testament has been read more than Acts chapter 2. So notice with me, the Spirit descends and we see these things. First, under A, we see the evidence the evidence, because Luke describes here a heavenly sound. There was a thunderclap, a rushing mighty wind, something indeed supernatural was going on. It wasn't a weather-related uh, phenomenon, but it was the activity of God Almighty. Actually, in the Hebrew language and the Greek language both, the word for wind and spirit is the same word. In the Greek New Testament, it's pneuma. And it's saying that this pneuma filled the house with the presence of God and then tongues of fire rested on each one of them. These were not literal flames as we know them, but instead seems to be flames of purifying presence of God collectively filling them in unison. So understand today, this was not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the indwelling of God's Spirit at conversion. This was a once-for-all-time happening, and we're not commanded anywhere in the Bible to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When we're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we get all of God. We don't need another baptism of the Holy Spirit when we get all of God at the time of our conversion. And so here we read Peter was not only filled with the Spirit at Pentecost, but later we read in Acts 4, 8 that he was filled again. Many people who were filled at Pentecost was later filled again. There's a difference between the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and a filling of the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, we're told in the Word of God uh, in Ephesians 5, 18, be not drunk with wine where is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. You and I are to operate being filled of the Spirit. It's a command of God. Then we see they began to speak in other tongues. And there has never been uh, 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 anything more debated or uh, 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 controversial, perhaps, than what happens here. And there are those who continue on with this, uh, with these uh, speaking in tongues idea. But here's what you need to know: this was not an unknown tongue. This was not ecstatic speech. These tongues spoken at Pentecost were known languages, and that's what it says in verse six. Everyone heard in their own language. So indeed, the miraculous was happened as people spoke languages they did not primarily know, but God was using this apostolic gift, and that gift would end with the passing of the apostles. It was a unique gift for the apostles. Something noteworthy. After the book of Acts, 
the only time, follow me today, that these miraculous gifts are mentioned is in the book of 1 Corinthians, which is one of the earliest epistles that was written. The later epistles, Ephesians, Romans, 1 Peter, which discuss spiritual gifts, you will find no mention of the miraculous gifts. Why is that? Because the first century apostolic gifts was unequivocally given to the apostles and them alone. But who can argue here the miraculous was going on? A heavenly sound, an understandable speech, an incredible sight as the Holy Spirit manifests His presence in a way that their ears, their eyes, their mouths would all give testimony to the profound demonstration of the Spirit's coming. The power of God was at work. We see the evidence. Under B, I want to talk about the effect in verses 5 through 11. The effect of the Spirit's presence here was that these linguistically limited Galileans now were speaking in, a multiple, in multiple languages. There were Jews who were gathered uh, for the celebration of Pentecost, and they had come from afar. That's what those verses say uh, through verse 11. Uh, all the way from modern-day Iran, the Parthians, the Medes from Persia, regions of Asia Minor, Cappadocia, Persia, visitors from Rome, Christian, the, the, the uh, Arabs, on and on and on. And all of a sudden, even though they spoke different languages that day, they heard in their own language. And the Spirit began to convince those that had gathered that, uh, that, that Jesus Christ was indeed the one true God. But all of this really was the groundwork. It was the, the preliminaries for the, the message that Peter was about to preach in this Pentecostal sermon, a sermon that God would use in, in proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ that would change the world. That becomes the effects of what's going on here. I, I want to talk just briefly in passing under C about an explanation. It's in verses 12 and 13, but I don't want to jump over it. Because he explains to them what's going on. He says, hey, look, this utterance that's going on, them speaking in these languages, this is not because these guys are drunk. He said, matter of fact, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. So not that they couldn't get drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning, but I guess it was common knowledge you wouldn't be drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. But he's saying, here's the effects of what God is doing. It's not about the wine. It's about the Spirit of God. That's the Pentecostal phenomenon. Let me move secondly to the prophetic proclamation because Peter is about to preach the Pentecostal sermon. You know, I doubt if we really can comprehend how bold it was that day for Peter to stand up and preach this message. For he was telling, now follow me here, a completely Jewish audience that the Messiah's arrival that they had longed for and looked for for centuries had indeed already come. And matter of fact, you'll find in this message, he tells them, and you killed him two months earlier. So not only would it have been shocking, to their ears it would have been blasphemous. So now Peter, endured, empowered from God, was giving evidence, scriptural background, to prove his audacious claims. He goes back to the scripture. And as we read, he uses the prophet Joel about the promise of the Holy Spirit coming all humanity, resulting in those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Look what he says in verse 25. He uses the psalmist David. He quotes from Psalm 16 about the promise 
of the resurrection of God's holy one. And then finally in verse 34, he uses another psalm, Psalms 110, that declares the deity of Jesus Christ. So here's what Peter is doing. He is masterfully and hermeneutically crafting this message. He uses scriptural references, certainly that would resonate with his audience. So you know what he was doing here? We know what he was doing here. He was preaching the Bible. He opened the Word of God, and he preached the Word of God. And know this, the message founded and rooted in the truths of the Word of God was what he preached. That's what we do. We come here each Sunday. I open the Word of God to the people of God to build you up in your faith, to bring conviction because only the the Word of God does that. He didn't preach about success, success in the, re, uh, the, the workplace. He, he wasn't off on some tangent about some practical help, how, how you can have financial freedom. Now he, he didn't open up and say, hey, let me tell you four truths about how to get along with your mother-in-law. Now, hey, listen, he opened the Bible to them, and he preached the Bible about Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, the Logos, the Messiah, the Lord, the Reconciler, the Redeemer who had been sent from God to be the Savior of the world. Aren't you glad he preached the Bible? Four things I notice about Jesus that, would, that he would have them know in this prophetic proclamation. Here's what he's doing. He's unpacking these truths about Jesus, preaching Jesus. First, we see he talks about his ministry in verse 22. As he says, you, as you well know, Jesus the Nazarene. Oh, you know about him. <laughs> There's no way for you to be around anywhere in close proximity not to know about Jesus the Nazarene. Really, and Peter used what Paul did. You remember in Acts 26, and, he, and King Agrippa comes in. And Paul in Ephesus there says to King Agrippa, hey, you know about Jesus. This didn't happen in any corner. You know about his ministry. He's the one who's spoken with authority. And you can't read the New Testament without seeing great crowds come to him, to hear him speak. And there was a buzz all about the mighty miracles that he had done, the signs declaring his deity. We remember well in this encounter in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus the, the, the Jewish uh, a well-known teacher who, who, who indeed had come to Jesus at night. And he said in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who came from God, for no one else could do these signs which you do unless God is with him. As we know, the Gospels chronicle about 34 miracles that Jesus did. But John would conclude his uh, Gospel in saying in verse our chapter 20, verse 30, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. For these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing on him, you might have life eternal. So it's not surprising that, that Peter would bring up here the ministry of Jesus. But he didn't quit there. Not only the ministry, he talks about the murder of Jesus. You crucified, he says, verse 23, and you killed him. Now, Peter wasn't in any way saying that Jesus was a victim. Oh, no. This was God's predetermined plan. In essence, while things perhaps there at the cross and the crucifixion of Jesus seemed a little bit 
chaotic or caustic or even confounded. The cross and the crucifixion of Jesus was just as God had ordained. This was his sovereign and predetermined plan. But understand with me today, this still did not absolve those who put Jesus to death, as was with Judas. While he was even foreordained as the son of perdition, although he was but a pawn in the hand of God, he would be used to initiate the infamous betrayal. Still, he stood responsible for his own actions. So God used evil men to accomplish his divine purpose, yet he did not violate their will and remove their capacity of doing what was right. So once again, here's what we see in the Bible, as we do so often. We see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility that run side by side, both presented as true, yet in our mind they seem to conflict a little bit. But I'm telling you, in the mind of God, these things are certainly reconciled. And Jesus would say in Luke 22, verse 22, And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man to whom he is betrayed. Listen, those who murdered Jesus, they weren't responsible for God's plan, but they were responsible, hear me today, for their own actions. And so it is with each of us. We stand responsible before God. We see his ministry We see his murder. Under three, we see his miracles. Verse 24, we read about the miracles that Jesus did. He did countless miracles, some that are recorded in the Bible, but as I mentioned, not all of those. But the miracle of all (laughs) that Peter is preaching here is the miracle of the resurrection. As we well know, this is the linchpin. It's the litmus test of true Christianity As the Apostle Paul would write, if Christ be not risen and our hope in him is only for this life, we of all men are to be most pitied. Understand the resurrection is a central theme of apostolic preaching. It's also without question the epicenter of redemptive history of mankind. While it validated all of Jesus' claims, guess what? It guarantees to each of us our hope of resurrection as well. What's it say? You know well what it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Therefore, we're buried with Christ through baptism unto his death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so now we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united to the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be resurrected in the likeness of that resurrection. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes on me, though he may die, yet he shall live. And the one who believes in me, what? Shall never die. Here's what I know about you. Here's what I know about me. One day, we're going to die. One day, it's going to be all over here on earth. Joseph Biley wrote a little book reminding us of the sobering truth. He calls it, the book is entitled, The Last Thing We Talk About. He said this, this frustrates us, especially in the line of scientific breakthrough and exploiting, uh, exploding, I should say, knowledge that we should be able to break out of Earth's environment and yet be stopped cold by death's unyielding mystery. An electroencephalogram may replace a mirror held before one's mouth. 
Autopsies may become more sophisticated. Cosmetic embalming may take the place of pennies on the eyelids or a canvas shroud. But death continues to confront us with its black wall. Everything changes, but death is changeless. We may postpone it. We may tame its violence, but death is still waiting for us. Death always waits. The door of the hearse is never closed. Dairy farmers and sales executives live in death's shadow. With Nobel Prize winners and the prostitute, mother and infant, teen and old man, the hearse stands waiting for the surgeon who transplants a heart as well as the hopeful recipient, for the funeral director as well as the corpse he manipulates because death spares none. Do you realize this is the backdrop to the gospel message? As Jesus tells us from his lips and the continual witness of the word of God, we don't have to die. We can live forever. That's the hope of the gospel. Though we be dead, we shall live again. Jesus has overcome our last enemy, which is death itself. What's the Bible say? How shall we survive if we neglect so great of salvation? It's not surprising. He talks about the miracle of the resurrection. Finally, he concludes speaking of Jesus here in this prophetic proclamation about his Messiahship. Verse 36, he uses these Messianic prophecies. He uses this Messianic Psalms. He speaks of the miraculous resurrection. And he concludes the formula, now stay with me, by saying all of these convincing proofs, these undeniable realities are declaring to you the Messiah has arrived. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Word that became flesh, that dwelt among you, that you beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. He's Jehovah God incarnate. Yes, He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died a vicarious death. He defeated our last enemy of death. And let it be known that God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. So honestly, this gospel-driven message from the lips of the Apostle Peter would be the whole hope of Christendom. It's our hope today. We gather in the name of Jesus as we've already sung and declared, for he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we could become the righteousness of God in him and have life everlasting. What a sermon, what a message. Let's conclude with this last point. We see the Pentecostal phenomenon, a once-for-all time happening, as Peter would stand to preach. This prophetic proclamation, as he goes to the Old Testament and says, here he is in fulfillment of what Joel had said, what the psalmist had written, he is the Lord God. And I want to quit with this. I'm calling it the persuasive plea. Because this, in verse 37, he's bringing this uh, Pentecostal sermon to a close. And we see that God was working as Jesus promised, and he was con con convicting there. The men who had gathered, those who were hearers of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So let's talk under A about their conviction. Verse 37, and they heard this. Look at this. They were cut, or they were pierced, it may say in your translation, cut to the heart. So indeed, through the preaching of God's word, they, he indicted the, the listeners. 
that they had rejected the Messiah because of their hardened hearts. And all of a sudden, those hardened hearts became pierced. That, that word pierced is, is interesting, cut as it, as it is in the New King James. It's only used one time in all of the New Testament, and it simply means to stab or, or to penetrate. And, and, and certainly depicting something that, is, that comes suddenly and even unexpectedly. And that's what's going on here. The Holy Spirit attacked them with grief and remorse, and they realized that it was true that they had missed the promised one from God. And worse than that, they were guilty of killing him, guilty before God, realizing that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord now has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And they asked the question, what then shall we do? You know what they were asking? Listen, we've heard this. Holy Spirit of God has cut us to the heart. What's expected of us? What then should we do? How can we be saved? Because the confrontation of the gospel was at work. It was bringing conviction upon these men who did not even know how to respond. And so we see under B, not only their conviction, but the command, verse 38. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sin. So, so first, let's, let's take this apart a little bit. Repent and be baptized. That word repent uh, is a well-used word in the New Testament. It's the Greek word metanoia. You know what it literally means? It means to be having a change of mind which issues in regret and results in a change of conduct. Oh yeah, you got to start thinking differently when you repent. It's changing your mind about something. And also there's a sense of remorse and regret in your soul, but that's not all of it. It's a change of conduct. And that's the message that we preach. It's the message that Peter preached as well. Because it is essential in genuine conversion. You say, well, I just thought it's simply belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Well, that's true. But can I tell you, repentance and faith in Jesus Christ are different sides to the same coin. It indeed is both, both of these are essential. And Peter really joined with a prophetic chorus. And the focus of his preaching was really the preaching that had been done through the prophets of the Old Testament, John the Baptist inclusive, the simple message of repentance. Finally personified when Jesus said this in Luke 13, except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. So it's not surprising when Peter would give the appeal, he would say, you got to repent. you got to turn from a life of sin. you got to think about things differently. you got to have a change of conduct. And you've got to come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he called for believers' baptism. It was an act of identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But here's what you got to understand. This is not baptismal regeneration. They were not getting saved through those baptismal waters. The, pre, the, 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 the preposition that's translated here for in the Greek New Testament can mean, and certainly does mean here in this context, because of. Repent and be converted. Repent and be baptized now because of the remission of sins. They would receive the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. The third person of the Trinity would come to dwell in their hearts through faith. They repent. They believe. 
but they, when they believe is when they're saved. Not when they get in the baptismal waters and not when they're immersed. But now they're being changed, made into the image of Christ, and they unashamedly come to be baptized. You know, I, I'm always a little curious about those who accepted Christ as their personal Savior. And maybe they've been immersed as a, as a baby or some kind of commitment was made through their parents and they come to personal faith in Christ, but they don't want to get baptized. You know, here, here's what I know. You can't find one incident in the Bible about any unbaptized believers. I'm telling you, when they believed, they got baptized. You know why? Because they were, that was their opportunity to give public confession of their faith among men. They were not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God and salvation to all who would believe. So we see their conviction. We see the command. Now let's see the compelling nature of this in verse 40. He concludes, Peter does. And here's what's interesting. They didn't just go home. They weren't told, listen, if you've got an interest in the things that were just said, why don't you hang around a little while? Hey, how about filling out a card? We'll try to get back with you. Leave your email address. We'll follow up as quick as we can. Not at all. He exhorted them, and he testified and compelled them to come. Listen, if we need a proof text on giving an invitation, as has been the nature of Baptist churches over the years, we've got it right here. And with many other words, he urged them, he compelled them to come. In just a moment, I'm going to, I'm going to conclude this sermon. And what do I do? Like I always do, I'm going to urge you and compel you to come. If you've never given your heart to Christ, I'll say, come. Come, you blessed my Father, inherit a kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world. Come. I call those who need to make a recommitment of their life to Christ. On recommitment, come, come, come. All the, those who are weary and heavy laden, in Jesus you can find rest for your soul. His yoke is easy, his burden light. You come, let us pray for you. Let us bear uh, your burdens with you. We, we invite you to come. Not because I think it's a good idea. It's not because pragmatically we might get a few more people to respond to what we're saying, but because this is what the Bible says. This is what they were doing. They were compelling people and urging them with many other words to come. You say, well, that day is past. Matter of fact, I go to other churches. They never give a public invitation. And I'll say, well, that's their prerogative. They can do that. And I'm not saying necessarily that this is the only way it can be done. But I'm telling you, if we're looking for a proof text, we've got it. And I never have to apologize if I find myself doing what the Bible is doing. And so we're going to continue there. You say, well, I don't even know if it's doing any good. And that's not even the issue. The issue is, are we going to follow what we believe that God's Word says? It's not because we're going to get results if we push this button or we extend our invitation with, with three, uh, three different uh, hymns. We're doing it because God's word compels us to do it. I'm quitting with this. So Peter exhorted them to come and be saved. Now, under the, let's talk about their conversion. Their conviction, the command, the compelling, and now their conversion, verse 41. These also who received the word were baptized. Here's what we know. The commitment of the Apostle Peter 
what he was doing was calling for a hard decision. Can you imagine being there and hearing this message and knowing full well what the implications would be? That you really had to turn your back on a culture? That you very well are going to be ostracized by your family? That you're probably going to be ridiculed wherever you go? But still, here's how we know God was in it. 3,000 of them said yes to that, to this passionate appeal. And guess what? The first meeting of the church was a huge success. Mary and I have been to Jerusalem many times. Over on the southern steps, you have these mikvahs, which are purifying baths that they used to, do, to, to take when they go in the temple. And so right there, God had ordained it where they had a place they could baptize all of those who came, 3,000 people would be saved and baptized. And the New Testament church was on the way. You know what's sweet about this? You and I are part of that church, the church universal. We get to be a part of it. And I conclude with a hymn that we all know, Room at the Cross, while millions have come, there's still room for one. There's room at the cross for you. I wonder today, would you come? Maybe there's something missing in your heart and life. The meaning and purpose that only Jesus can give is not there. Maybe you've been to church a thousand times, but you've never really been born again. Why don't you come today and give your heart to Christ? If I'm speaking to you today and you've drifted away from a relationship that you once knew, a fellowship that was so sweet, but, but sin's made its way into your life, and every time you hear the Bible preacher's conviction in your heart, why don't you get right today? Why don't you go God's way? Let me tell you what these people will do. You think one of them will judge you? I don't think so. I think everyone will rally around you to say, we're on your team. We're on your side. We'll pray for you. We want to love you with the love of God found only. In Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads today. Father, this is your invitation. I pray now as we make our appeal. If some have heard today a simple but saving message, I pray they would respond. As we sing this hymn of invitation, O oh Lord, we would pray that the Holy Spirit would once again convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And that... We do what we know to do, and that's lift up Jesus to preach the only hope of lost humanity, belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe and be saved. Repent and come home. I pray today for that one who's here that today sense conviction in their life through the preaching of your word, maybe the emptiness that's been theirs. And Lord, I know conviction always comes when we are confronted with your word. And I pray for those who have drifted, I pray that this would be the day of decision to return to the God who's loved them with an everlasting love. And I pray once again, O oh Holy Spirit of God, you would capture our souls. So, Holy Spirit, this is your invitation. We lift up Jesus, knowing that when we do, you'll draw people to him. And so our confidence is in the resurrected Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. I'll be at the front.
Other staff will be here. If you'd like to come, this will be your opportunity. As I say, we're not going to be here long, but we're going to be here for you if you'll come. Come now while we sing. God calls. Come quickly right now. Holy Spirit, living breath of God, breathe new life into my willing soul. Bring the presence of the risen Lord to what we're going to do for our benediction. David, I'm going to ask you to lead us in this second verse of this wonderful invitation hymn. Let's sing this and let's believe it afresh in our hearts. You'll be free to go after we conclude uh, this invitation time. And uh, we love you. Appreciate you so much. Thank you for your kindness. It's continually expressed to Mary and I. We're We're eternally grateful that God has us here for you. Thank you for coming today, church. You're dismissed.